So again, we're going to be in Luke 1, um, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 25 this morning. And the key truth we're going to see from this text is that the certainty of our faith grows when we run to God's word with our doubts. The certainty of our faith grows when we run to God's word with our doubts. So let's see that this morning in Luke verses uh, 1 through 25 of chapter 1. This is God's word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me, in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we look at this text, I think a helpful reflection to begin with is is to consider the way that nothing grows faith like waiting. Waiting requires you. It demands that you trust. When you are waiting, you're not making something happen. You're looking to somebody else or to something else to make something happen for you. And so when you're waiting, you become quite aware of where your faith is, what you're putting it in. You also become aware of your doubts, become aware of your anxieties, your lack of assurance. And so that's why nothing grows faith like waiting. It forces you to see the state of your heart, and it puts your faith center stage by removing everything else. 
And yet so often as you think about the course of your life, we all live in the fast lane, always busy and ever distracted and never truly waiting on much anything. The moment we have to wait for anything, in line at the store, in line at the drive-thru, we whip out our phone or some manner of diversion and distraction because we might be afraid of what will surface while we're waiting. When you're busy, you can run from your doubts. When you're distracted, you don't have to confront your lack of assurance in the gospel. You don't have to face the anxiety you feel about God's goodness to you. When you're busy and distracted, you can skate along the surface of those things and ignore them. But when you're waiting and you're not distracted and you're not busy, these thoughts and these feelings, they bubble to the surface. And then you must decide which way are you going to run with them? What are you going to do with the doubts that you do have, with the lack of assurance you do sometimes feel, with the anxieties you do carry? Will you run towards God, or will you run away from him into the arms of another distraction that will only be able to bury those things but never heal the doubts you carry? So the question we should think about as we begin this Advent series is, what do you struggle to believe about God and the gospel? There are all, we all struggle to believe certain things about the Lord and his good news to us in Christ. The question is, are we paying attention to those things? Have we named them? And then which way are you running with those doubts? Are you bringing them to the Lord and his word? Are you trying to leave them in your car in the parking lot when you show up here and you know, hide them behind a smiling face? Or are you bringing them here? Because what we remember at Advent and what we're going to see over and over again in Luke's gospel is that God runs towards his people in the very places of their doubts, in the places of our waiting and our uncertainty. God came down and dwelled among us. The light entered the darkness and was not overcome. Jesus entered the womb to fill the manger, to hang on the cross, to empty the tomb, to defeat death and sin and Satan for all time. But he does that again by drawing near. And so over and over in Luke's gospel, we will see how the Lord draws near to people who are waiting, who have very real doubts, very real pains, very big questions. And yet as the Lord draws near to them and they draw near to the Lord's word in faith, their doubts suddenly become not the obstacle to faith, but the very avenue to deepen their faith. And suddenly their faith gives rise to joy and they grow in their praise and their proclamation of Christ. And yet for us, you know, that ought to be what we hope this Advent, that the Lord would meet us in our doubts and that he would grow our faith as a result and that that would deepen our joy in Jesus. But the first step we'll see this morning is you have to name those doubts and bring them with you to the Lord's word. And so as we turn to the text and we look at verses one through four, Luke's prologue and purpose, we'll see that Luke is confident that this is what God's word is for. It is for bringing our questions, our doubting hearts, all of our wandering anxiety. It's for bringing it here because this is the place where we meet the Lord. And one of the things that makes Luke's gospel unique is these four verses at the beginning. He has um, this, this prologue where he talks about his purposes as a gospel writer. And his Greek here is spectacular. This, this Greek, if you, if you know Greek and you look at this, it's much more like the classical Greek historians than the common Greek of the rest of the New Testament. And I mention that because Luke is writing as if he were a uh, high-caliber, first-class historian on the world stage. And the reason you need to know that is because Luke is completely confident in the truth and historicity of Jesus and what he came to do. He is saying these things happened, and they can take all the scrutiny, scrutiny of the world's questions and withstand it. 
Jesus came and he did these things that have been accomplished among us. And so in verse 2, he's like any good historian, he tells us where he got his information. You know, he didn't throw his gospel together last minute like you might if you're in, in uh, high school or college and you wait till last night to write the paper and you just, you know, you know, I can't cite Wikipedia, so I go to the bottom of Wikipedia and cite what Wikipedia cited. That's not what Luke does. Look at what he says, verse 2. From the beginning, there were eyewitnesses. And so if you want to know that something really happened, you find the people who saw it. And Luke found those people. He tracked them down. It would have been the apostles. It would have been Mary. It would have been maybe the 500 that Paul mentions who witnessed Christ's resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Luke went and tracked these people down to verify what happened. And he also built upon the testimony of ministers of the word, the apostles, who delivered these things to him. We're fairly confident, too, that Luke had Mark's gospel as one of the narratives that had already been written at this time. And he's building on it, not to correct it, but to, to fulfill it, to flesh it out even more. That's why he says in verse 3 that he came to write an orderly account. And an orderly account doesn't just mean, you know, it's very chronological and the timeline is pristine, but he means he just came to do fits together and what it means for us. He wants us to see the truth and its application to our lives. And he addresses someone very particularly. He refers to this person as most excellent Theophilus. And that, that title there, most excellent, that indicates that Theophilus was probably a man of wealth and status. This was an important person. He was likely Luke's patron um, because you couldn't self-publish through Amazon in those days. You had to have somebody who had the money to pay for the supplies to publish what you were writing and to, to distribute it. And so Theophilus was likely Luke's patron and he was also somebody who had been taught much about the faith. He had been catechized. And he was either a very recent convert who still had a lot of big questions about Jesus and the gospel, or he may have been on the fence and had investigated these things and had learned a lot about Christianity but wasn't quite ready to take the plunge. And so Luke dedicates his gospel to him. He says, I've written this, verse 4, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, he wants Theophilus to know that these things are true, all of them. And they are true, and they can change Theophilus' life. And so, as Luke is connecting the dots about Jesus' story, he's doing it also to connect the dots of Jesus' story to our lives, to help us have certainty about these things, to have assurance that they are real and they matter for us. <clears throat> and so we see then that for Luke, the cure for, for doubt is God's word. He's telling Theophilus, come and look at what I wrote. I've done the work. It can withstand your questions. It can withstand the world's challenges. Jesus came and you can ask any question and I am confident that God's word will stand and it will build you up in your faith. And that word there for certainty, that helps us see that so often when we're wrestling with doubt, we don't need more information. We need assurance with the information we already have. And that's why we come to God's word week in and week out. You come not because there's a new verse in the Bible. And you come not because Cameron or Robbie or I are going to say something completely new about it. If we do, we may be going way off track. You come because we need to be built up in our certainty, in our assurance that these things are true, all of them, and that that makes all the difference in the world for us. And so often then when we try to just consume all this extra information, we're taking a shortcut. You know, there's nothing wrong with reading Christian books and things like that. If there is, I'm in deep trouble. Just look in my office. Um, but I have to check myself often. 
because that can be a shortcut where I just want to read a book or listen to a podcast and, you know, I get that nugget and, ah, that, that fixes this big question. I don't ever have to think about that again. But all those things, they ought to be bringing me back here to the Lord's word as I read it in my life throughout the week and especially as, as it is preached because that is where our assurance grows. It takes faith to come to the same word of God week in and week out and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe that you are good and that you will provide for my family, but this economy is hard. Help my unbelief. I believe that you are with me in my fear and my anxiety, but man, it's been a tough day. Help my unbelief. And you come time and time again to this place, to the word, because this is where your certainty can grow and the Lord will grow it. And so this Advent season gives us all a very good opportunity to examine our heart's grip on the truth about Jesus. Where has that truth collected dust in your heart? You know, as you take out your Christmas decorations, they have dust. Has the gospel collected dust in your heart? You know, take this season not just to decorate, but to, to actually unwrap your heart from its busyness and to sit before the word of the Lord that you may be nourished and built up. Where has suffering created wounds that need the balm of God's love? Where might a lack of assurance <clears throat> be stealing the breath from your lungs in your worship and discipleship? These are the places that God invites you to come near to him this Advent. So run to him with your doubts. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, <clears throat> with that in mind from Luke's prologue and, and his purpose statement, we get into the meat of the text in verses 5 through 25, and we meet someone who runs to God with his doubts, and we see it is not a neat process, but the Lord is at work in it. So this is the announcement of John's birth. <clears throat> so in verse 5, Luke begins his narrative proper, and he starts by talking about Herod the Great. He uses this to, to say when this happened. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, now this is Herod the Great. He reigned from 37 to 4 BC. We know from historical records that he was a ruthless king. He was an opportunist. Um, he was an Idumean, which meant he was a descendant of the Edomites, and he was Jewish only by conversion. So a lot of the Jews, especially ones who were very devout, they did not like Herod, despite the fact that he built them lots of nice things. And yet notice, none of that stuff about Herod gets mentioned here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, moving on to the important stuff. Luke is subverting our expectations about where the important things in history happen. The Lord is not coming to the king in his palace. The Lord is not coming to weigh in on the political controversies of the day. The Lord is coming to, a, uh, to send his forerunner first to a priest, an old priest, in some little town in Judea. And that is interesting, that Luke would say, yeah, here's Herod, he's a timestamp. now on to the important things. He's calibrating our hearts. He's saying, you want to see God's kingdom, you have to look in places you're not expecting. And here's where we need to look with this priest named Zechariah. Now, Zechariah... Luke explains in his backstory, was a priest. He was of the division of Abijah. And what that means is in 1 Chronicles 24, David had organized Israel's priests. There were a lot of them. And he organized them into 24 divisions, little groups or squads. They weren't really little, they were big. And they would each take turns about two weeks out of every year serving in the temple, leading Israel in their worship. And so Zechariah was of the division of Abijah. He was married. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And then Luke, in verse 6, he describes their piety. He says they were both righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This doesn't mean they were perfect and never sinned, but what it does mean is that they were model believers. When they sinned, they ran to God. 
They ran to the temple. They obeyed the Lord's commandments about sacrifices and offerings, and they obeyed those things. And it's interesting, too, in Leviticus 21.14, the instructions for priests and their marriages, they didn't have to marry a woman from a priestly family. They just had to marry a virgin Israelite. But if you married a woman who was a descendant of a priest, especially the original high priest, Aaron, that was seen as an extra blessing. So Zechariah is married to a priestly uh, descendant, to Elizabeth. They're seen basically as a power couple. They're model believers, and all of that accentuates what Luke says in verse 7. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now in Israel, where so much is put on the promise of being fruitful and multiplying, this was often seen as a curse. Why would God not give you a child? What did you do wrong? And, and for Elizabeth and Zechariah, their life seems to be a contradiction. They've been so faithful. And yet, this joy, this good gift has been withheld from them their whole lives. Like Abram and Sarah, they are advanced in years and they have no child. And what we see here is that um, if, you are, if you have ever or currently are wrestling with infertility, you are not the first one to do so. And the Bible sees you. The Bible knows that path and it knows that burden. Um, and it invites you to bring that pain to the word of the Lord. Recognize that you are seen. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth have walked that path before you with all those questions and all those sorrows and all those doubts. And yet what we see is that if they continued to be righteous before the Lord, that meant that they brought those things to God. They didn't hide their pain from the Lord, but they brought it to him year after year after year. And then in verse 8, Luke explains that uh, one, one time while Zechariah was serving, something unique happened. And so his division was on duty, and that means that it was their week at the temple, and according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to go inside the temple and offer incense. And so every day at the temple, in morning and at night, <clears throat> they would offer incense to the Lord. And because there were so many priests, you would usually only get to do that one time in your career. You were chosen by lots. And so this is a big deal for Zechariah. It's basically the high point of his career as a priest. He was chosen by lots to go inside into the inner part of the temple and offer incense. It was his big day as a priest. And so he goes inside. Everyone else is outside who's gathered for worship, verse 10. They're praying, and he is offering the incense that represents their prayers rising to the Lord. And yet while he's inside, something startling happens. Verse 11, an angel appears to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah is very troubled when he sees this angel, and fear falls upon him. And when we read these responses about angels in the Bible, um, especially as a kid, maybe it was because uh, I just look at all the figurines at like Christmas time and the angels were all cherub and rosy faced. And I was like, why are they so scared of the angels? But again, the angels are not, you know, precious moment, you know, rosy faced cherubs. These are holy spiritual beings sent from the presence of God to proclaim his word and accomplish his mission. If you see an angel as a, as a fallen human being, you better be afraid because to be otherwise would be proud and presumptuous. So Zechariah's response is right. He is fearing the holiness of this one who has come from God's presence because he doesn't know what's going on. He may have even thought, is the angel here because I messed up? Like, I have no idea what's happening. And so the angel says to him, though, verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
And this is interesting to think about because in that moment, Zechariah was probably not praying a personal prayer for his own son. You know, he's old in years. He may not have been praying that much anymore in his life at all. At this point, he's praying for Israel. He's the priest on duty offering incense. He is praying for the, the redemption of Israel, for God to be on the move for his people. And yet now, as Gabriel says, your prayer has been answered, it's as if God is taking these prayers that Zechariah and Elizabeth had likely prayed for years in the past, and he's uniting it with the prayers that Zechariah is now praying as priest for Israel, and he's putting them together. And he's saying, all in one, God is fulfilling these prayers for you and your wife to have a son, and through that son, God is going to begin to move again for the redemption of his people. What Zechariah probably assumed had been a no to his prayer for a son for years was now being answered with a remarkable yes. What it looked like no had all along actually been not yet. And Gabriel got to be the one to break that good news to Zechariah. He and Elizabeth were to have a son, and his name was to be John. And this son's uh, mission would be to uh, fulfill the Lord's purposes and prepare the way for Jesus. And that would bring great joy and gladness, not just because the barren woman has now been given a child, but because of what this child would do for the Lord and by the Lord. He would be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine and strong drink. Why? Because he'll be filled by the, uh, by the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That is unique. John was to be set apart from his conception for the Lord's purposes. And so what is happening here is on the one hand, you have life where there was no life, like with Abram and Sarah and Isaac comes, and then with Isaac and Rebekah, and then you have Jacob and Esau. And then uh, to Rachel, you have, um, you have Joseph. And then you have uh, Samson to the wife of Manoah. And then you have Samuel to Hannah. You have these patterns in the Old Testament of children coming where it looked like no child would ever come. And the Lord shows up and he says, this is how I will fulfill my promises. And now, after 400 years of silence from the prophets, God does it again in Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives. And in doing it, he is answering and fulfilling the prophecies he made in Malachi 3.1 and 4.5 and 6. Malachi was the last prophet that Israel had before those 400 years of silence um, of revelation. And in Malachi 3.1, God promised that there was coming a day where he would send someone to prepare his way, to go ahead and make the path ready for the Lord to come and visit his people. And now he's saying, that's John. He is the one who is coming. And in Malachi 4.5 and 6, God promised that he would send this messenger who would be like Elijah, one of the greatest of Israel's prophets. And this messenger would come with power and in a mighty spirit, and he would turn the people back to the Lord their God and turn them back to each other through a ministry of repentance. And that's what John's ministry would be all about. That's what Gabriel means when he says he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's going to have a ministry of repentance. He's going to tell them, you've been running the wrong way. Turn back to the Lord your God. He is coming. Get ready. And notice that that ministry of repentance, it creates unity among Israel. The children and the fathers are turned back to each other. The generational rifts will be bound up and, and healed in the Lord. And the disobedient will be brought back to the wisdom of the just. They'll be brought back to Scripture, to God's Word. And all of that will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John's ministry is to be the forerunner. He's to go ahead and make ready the way, proclaiming the fact that the Lord is coming. He is coming. The king will come to his people. And the question then for the people of God is, are you prepared for him? 
Are you prepared to run to your king as he comes to you in grace and mercy? And so this is astounding news, that to the most unlikely of people, God has chosen to begin to move to fulfill all of his promises. And yet Zechariah, verse 18, has doubts about Gabriel's good news to him. His question, how shall I know this, is a demand for a sign. He's not asking, hey, how's this going to work? Um, you know, my wife and I were very old. This doesn't seem to be in the cards for us. Gabriel, what do you mean? How's this going to happen? I don't understand. When he says, how shall I know this? He's saying, what can you give me as a sign to prove that this is going to happen in addition to your word? I need something more tangible here. Like, I don't, I don't believe this. I need proof. And it's interesting because in the Bible, sometimes God does invite believers to ask for signs. You know, he did that with King Ahaz in Isaiah 7. And sometimes he grants the request when a believer just asks for a sign of their own volition, like Abraham does uh, when God says in Genesis 15, he'll give him the land. But sometimes asking for a sign is evidence of unbelief. All throughout the Gospels we see this. The Pharisees will come to Jesus after he does miracles and they say, show us a sign. He says, no other sign will be given to you other than the sign of Jonah because of their unbelief. And so what, what that tells us, all those data points, when you put that together, is that in the Bible there's no formula for can you ask God for a sign when an angel shows up or God himself shows up and gives you a word? Or can you not ask him for a sign? What matters here is that the Lord sees the hearts of his people. He knows what's motivating them when they do or do not ask for a sign. And in some cases, it is struggling faith, like with Abraham. In other cases, like with Zechariah here, it, it may be pride and stubbornness and unbelief that asks for a sign. And the key is that the Lord whose word discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, he sees Zechariah. And Gabriel then tells Zechariah, he reminds him, he says, I am Gabriel. In other words, I am an angel. I stand in God's presence and I was sent to you to, to bring this good news. And so behold, you will be silent and unable to speak because you did not believe my word. And so this is what we call a severe mercy. The Lord is kind to Zechariah. He doesn't say, you know what, because you didn't believe, uh, I, I changed my mind, I'm not going to do this for you. But instead, Zechariah becomes a sign unto himself. The Lord grants his request. He gets a sign, and the sign is his own silence, his own muteness. For about 10 months, because it will be a little bit more time before John will be conceived, and then for the nine months thereafter, he will be silent. He won't be able to utter no words. And he will be left and put in a situation where he gets to reflect on God's word for that whole time. And that is a hard thing for him, but it is also a good thing for him because the Lord knows what his heart needs to grow in faith to receive the good news he has just been given. The Lord knows how to help us in our doubts, even if it seems painful at first. And that is what is happening here for Zechariah. God is going to use his doubts and his unbelief, as messy as they are, to put him in a place of intentional growth in his faith for a season. And so in verse 21, Zechariah eventually comes out of the temple because at this point the people would have thought, this is taking a lot longer than usual. You know, what is going on in there? Did he, did he fall asleep? Did he trip? Like, what's, what's happening? And when he comes out, ordinarily what would happen is the priest would come out and he pronounced the ironic blessing, the ironic benediction from Numbers 6. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And he would pronounce that on the people. And so the people are expecting uh, Zechariah to come out and say that to them. And when he comes out, 
you know, he's coming out probably confused, very animated, and yet able to say nothing, making signs of them, very big hand motions, like a good Italian. You know, he is trying to communicate, and they realize he's seen a vision. Something has happened. And so he finishes out the day. He would have finished out his week of service, and he goes home. And then the Lord's word comes true. His wife conceives. John is made. And for five months, it says, she kept herself hidden. That's very interesting that she lays low for so long, but I think she joins Zechariah in waiting upon the Lord in this season. They're waiting and, and they're beholding what their God has done, the goodness that he has given them. And she comments on this, that the Lord has done for her in the days when he looked on her. He has taken away her reproach among people. In other words, the woman who was called barren, think of our call to worship, Psalm 113, verse 9. The woman who was called barren has been given a home. She's been made the joyous mother of children because God is on the move. And so as we reflect on all that this means for us, listen to what James R. Edwards says about Zechariah's doubts in his commentary on Luke. He says this, The purpose of Gabriel's judgment is not to annul the choice of Zechariah, in other words, not to cancel him and say, I've rejected you, nor does it result in his fall from grace or halt the fulfillment of God's promise. It is a remedial work of the Spirit, a severe mercy that will enable faith. The spiritual experience of believers is not the determining factor in the life of discipleship, but rather the concrete promises of God, which will come true at their appointed time. And so what this means for us is that if you are carrying great doubts, you're carrying anxiety, you, you, you have a lack of assurance in God's love for you, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you're not a disciple. It doesn't even mean you're a bad disciple. It just reminds you that your experience isn't the prime thing in your discipleship. God's word is. His promises are. And so in those moments, even if God in his providence has put you in a place of severe mercy where it is a hard wrestling match, maybe for months, maybe for years, with some of the questions or the burdens you're carrying, that is not evidence against the growth of your faith or of God's grace to you. It's actually evidence of those things growing in your life. God did not reject Zechariah for voicing his doubts, for saying, how am I going to know this? Zechariah ran the right way. He brought that doubt, presumptuous as it may have been, and he brought it to God's word. And God, in his great mercy, even though Zechariah was asking the wrong question, he showed him that. And he put him in a place where he would grow in his faith, where he'd be able to receive the promise he had been given and where he would be able to be used by God. As we'll see in the coming weeks, Zechariah will be a changed man on the other side of this pregnancy. When his lips are loosed, he will be giving forth great praise to God. And so although this will be a painful and intense season for him, it will grow his faith tremendously. And so for us, what we should ask ourselves as we reflect on this text is, how can you intentionally use this Advent season to grow in your faith? You know, a great way to, to connect these questions is whatever your answer is to that first question, the doubts you have about God and the gospel, think about how this Advent can be a season that you intentionally grow in those ways. And again, that may not mean you run out and you buy a bunch of Advent devotionals and try to read a whole bunch of new things. It may just be you very intentionally put before the Lord the thing you've always been afraid to pray. Or you share with your brothers and sisters in Christ your lack of assurance and, and you overcome that fear of someone thinking, why, why do you carry that? Because we won't think that of you, because we carry it too. And so don't wrap your doubts beneath shiny paper this Advent. 
As the decorations go up, leave your heart unadorned with the glitz and glam, and let the Lord draw near with his word, that he might sanctify you and grow you and bring those things to the light of the gospel. And as you do so, you can be confident that God will use his word to grow the certainty of, his faith, of your faith because his promises are true. Amen.